Hi, I'm Sean, and welcome to the Love to Own Your Business podcast. Here, we learn how to grow businesses we love to own. Each month, we share great advice on how to do that, and also on how to avoid the pitfalls that make us love our business not so much. There's been a mysterious figure out there for a while that the average person will change careers five to seven times during their working life. But in 2010, the Wall Street Journal published an article with a BLS debunking this number. Why? Because what really constitutes a career change? That was 2010. Fast forward, 2020. Different economically challenged landscape. Different employment landscape. A lot of great talent is now available from industries and geographic locations that we simply did not have access to or interest from before. So how can business owners looking to build their bench stack the bench in their favor? How can we attract the best talent and also open our minds to what talent might be available from people that really are making a career change? Our guest today can help. With us this month is Kathy Lanzalaco, owner of Inspire Careers, where every day she puts her 18 years of professional HR experience to work, providing guidance, assistance, and support to executives and career-minded professionals seeking advancement or transition. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm great, Sean. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. So welcome to the show. And why don't you tell us about your work with Inspire Careers and what you're hearing from the professionals on your side of the desk? Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for having me first. I'm really excited about this opportunity because there is no hotter topic today than job search. So very timely. So um, Inspire Careers is a full career management firm offering career marketing solutions, you know, resume writing and career coaching strategies to help people be able to land their next job. And really, Sean, most of the people that I work with are passive job seekers, people that already have jobs, but there are certainly a lot of people and people I do work with as well that are out of work right now. And there's a lot of frustration going on out there. So I think that's what we're gonna be talking about today about how to break down some of those walls. So um, I know that when we started talking a little bit before we sat down to do the show, we were talking about a lot of companies that are really spending a lot of money in efforts to make their businesses really employers of choice, but they're not altogether happy with the results. Where do you feel that these businesses are missing the mark? Well, I think a lot of employers, obviously, they want to take care of the people that already work for them. So they focus a lot of their energies on their current workforce. And that's a great place to start because you've already invested in those people. But I feel like working with my job seekers and helping them try to penetrate some of these companies that are on their target company list, that some of the companies, it's not an all-inclusive statement, but some of them fall short on that entry piece, mm-hmm. right? That runway into the company. So as they're advertising, as they're interviewing, you know, sometimes the brand does not necessarily align with the candidate experience. And that's where the problems come in. Yeah, I, uh, we talk about that in marketing all the time, right? And that um, you really have to, you can't just market yourself. You have to really live up to the brand. Otherwise, it's sort of like bait and switch when they get there, right? right. Um, th- uh, that, I think that happens sometimes also in the interview process, right? Or they come, the candidates come, they sit down, they arrive, and all of a sudden, this isn't the company that I saw in the job description, you know? Uh, something maybe failing between the culture and the people actually doing the hiring, maybe? Well, that's absolutely the truth, you know, but I would also say that employers would say the same thing about the candidate, right? (laughs) For people that may 
not be completely frank and honest on their resumes and so forth. So I think it's a two-way street. There's no question about it. But I work with these candidates every day that are applying for jobs online, whether it's through LinkedIn, Indeed, or they go to the websites of a company that they're targeting and they look at these jobs and there's, you know, 20, 30 qualifications for these jobs and educational requirements and experience requirements. And it's overwhelming for people because it really doesn't tell them in many cases what they really want to know, right? It has that the little branding piece at the top about, well, this is our company and this is what we want, but it doesn't really give that insight that really you want the good candidates to be able to get so that you're receiving those good candidates and not just tons of applications for people that don't align with the company values either. So you bring up a good point though. So what is it really that we really need to fill in our positions, right? How can employers think about what are the, the 80%, right? Like in any good relationship, we go for 80% and then try to grow the last 20%, whether it's a marriage or, you know, a girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever the case might be. I think it's the same thing with candidates. Oh, I definitely think it's with that. And I think, as you mentioned, when we first started, they're looking for talent, they're looking for quality candidates. And there are so many people that have been displaced because of the economic fallout of COVID. And there is talent all over the place. And as these companies are marketing, some of them are doing a really great job at it. But I hear all the time from my clients that there's a huge gap. And as they're applying to the companies, they're frustrated because it doesn't seem to be the experience that they thought they were promised looking at the employer brand. So there's a lot of things happening and I'll I'll share with you one of the the biggest things that I hear from my clients. And this happens at at all types of different companies. And again, I'm not calling any of them out, but you Mm -hmm. can look online, you hear it all the time about uh, people going through the interview process and being ghosted. So I think, you know, sometimes keeping their word and being able to let people know in a dignified, humane process about if they're not a candidate or not, so not, you know, they're not, that's okay, but let people know. And I think that's part of the issue that people are struggling with. Yeah. I feel it's like overbooking an airplane, right? And then once they've gotten all the tickets they need sold, they start to have to just, you know, oh, sorry, you're bumped. I think that's a great analogy. And I think in the recruiter's defense, that's a lot of what they're up against. I mean, now in this day of online applications, you know, when you apply online on Indeed, LinkedIn, whatever it is, there are hundreds of people applying for one job now. And COVID has only accelerated that because there's so many people out of work looking for jobs. So recruiters only have so much bandwidth too. Right. But I think, you know, when we were talking to Sean, it's about putting that humanity back in the job search process. And remember that we're dealing with human beings here. And in many cases, some people have really been traumatized over this past year. Illness in their home, losing their livelihood, not being able to get back to work in a timely fashion. It's it's been a scary time. Yeah. I am at the very beginning of this whole thing. um, I I remember like writing a piece about uh, apprenticeship culture and really that there's really responsibilities on both sides of the equation to really make the road for recovery. And it's about responsibilities on the employer side, but also on the employee side. I think things were broken before COVID, right? The the disengagement problems, the, the people just sort of really not happy at work, employers not happy with their employees, and it's sort of snowballed and more and more and more over time. But now I think is a great opportunity to sort of equalize the situation and provide um, new workplaces and also new employee relationships to their employers. 
I'll stick around if you invest in me. I'm not going to go chase the next best thing for the next $5 or $10 an hour, right? Um, I think that there is a definite need for both people to make agreements uh, where they both have something to lose in the equation so that we can really raise the quality of both employment and employee. Yeah. Well, you know, you raise a great point there. And I tell my clients when they're interviewing that they're interviewing the companies as well. So they need to do their due diligence. It isn't all on the employers, right? If you're not asking the right questions, the responsibilities on, on the client too, on the candidate, right? You need to be able to research that company, understand and be able to identify what your own values are and what your own value offering is. Why would anybody want to hire you if you can't articulate it? I mean, and I think that this is a great time for people to be educated about what employers are looking for. And it's not just about the qualifications that they're looking for, but they're looking for people that are going to take initiative. And they're looking for people not just that can follow all the rules, right? I mean, you know, we know everybody's got to show up, you've got to do what you need to do. But I think nowadays, employers are really looking people for that personal investment. Who's going to have that business owner mindset? And I know we throw that around a lot. You know, people can say that. But the truth is, if you treat the business like it is your own, you give it the best. Yeah, I totally agree. You have to support the business and commit to it. And I think that's how trust forms, right? If both sides of the equation are treating each other uh, for the long term. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, you know, but I think the other thing that complicates this arrangement now, too, is in the old days, a year ago, uh, when most people, most people by far were in the office. And certainly some people worked from home. There was coming and going. There was, you know, some liberties that both employer and employee enjoyed. But right now there's a lot of rem remote work happening. Yeah. So how does the employer respond to that? right? It's a challenge for them to continue to engage their employees. Mm. And on the other side, the employees are challenged to feel engaged. And mm. now many cases, particularly with women, many cases, they're, they're still teaching their kids at home. They still have to take care of all that. You know, they're on Zoom and their kids are in the background. Things are happening. You know, we hear in the literature and in all the postings now that people are working more hours now than when yeah. they were in the office, yeah. but they're consistent hours. So are employees, are employers willing to accept that, that maybe I'll sign on at 6am and work till 10. And then I have to take a break for a couple hours to take care of personal engagements that I didn't have to take care of before, but I'll be back in a few hours and I'll work straight through past dinner. You know, is that okay? I think oh, those are conversations that need to happen. I, I totally agree because I, I've always come from the philosophy of, I don't pay you to show up and, and just be here, right? I pay you for a job. So this job is worth a certain amount of money from the company every year, right? Whether you do it at four o'clock in the morning or at six o'clock at night, if it's okay with the rest of the company and just the rest of the business world in general for those particular duties that you have, then fine. I don't, I don't care because I really just want to make sure that the job gets done. And I want to be mindful that there is a life outside of work also. And I also really, really believe that if you've hired right to begin with, you really do have to treat people like adults if you want them to act like adults. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been missing from the workplace for a long time. And that's one of the biggest demotivators to um, people that have already come wanting to do a good job for you, but you've sort of beat it out of them within the first 90 to 180 days, right? Really, employers are sort of finishing out what hasn't been finished in school for maturing kids uh, into the workplace. Um, it's really our job as employers to help really shape 
the minds of what workers will be, not in the traditional 1950s Drucker style, you know, factory style work, but what it means to be with all the soft skills and the emotional intelligence that we really need, avoid the drama. It's really our job as employers to help shape that for the young workforce. It is, but I also think that the rub on that is that balance where we have to still understand who they are. Every generation is different. And as this, but there's so many similarities too, right? But as these uh, young people are coming up now and they're graduating from college or in many cases, they're not even finishing college because they don't wanna make that continued financial investment in jobs that may not even be there. But we have to recognize that they come with different expectations too. And again, the the employers are challenged because they have multi-generational workforces. They have people that are even older than myself that, you know, have been working even longer. I've been working for what, 35 years or how long it's been. And so I carry all this, all these filters, all this baggage, if you will, about what I think work should be done. So you've got these multi-generational people in the workforce. How can employers make all of them happy? Mm. Right. So, you know, right. I mean, people with a certain work ethic um, and it doesn't make it better. doesn't make it worse. It's just different where they feel like you better be there every morning at seven 30, you stay till five o'clock. You, you know, you don't leave your desk. You don't do anything different. You don't entertain new ideas. You do exactly what you're told. And again, it's, it's not everybody's like that, but there is a certain underlying like that. There are people that, that still carry that with them that are resistant to change. There are other people of all ages that are open to all of it. And those are really the best people that you want. But let's be honest, every work, um, every workplace, every employer has people that are stuck in their ways, whether they're 30, whether they're 50, whether they're 60, it doesn't matter. challenge to engage all of them and get them to be accepting of all the different personalities and all the different work styles. Yeah. I I think a big contributor in my experience, observing the different generations inside of a workplace is that the, the older generations have didn't have the availability of the technology right at the beginning. So they didn't integrate their life at home and at work the same way that individuals who are now, who have grown up and found the ease of wanting to spread out the five minutes with their technology all throughout their day to integrate their, their work day throughout their whole day. Right. And so they feel like they want to take a little bit of break of work now, then they will go back to do work, but they'll do extra at home because they'll still be fielding their emails and they'll be doing their things from their phone that they wouldn't be able to necessarily have done outside of the office 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now you can do it on your way home, right? You can dictate to things as you're going home, right? So I, I think that is a big thing is the, how we've integrated technology into that work-life balance. All right, lunch break. We're going to switch gears for a second. We understand that you are the proud owner of an impressive collection of vinyl records and a huge fan of classic rock. How long have you been collecting and how did you get started? Um, Well, of course, you know, I told you I was 57. So, you know, I had the original albums back in the day. And then like everybody else, I got rid of them over time, switched down to, I don't know, cassettes and then to you know, discs, whatever. And then, I don't know, I guess about 15 years ago when I start my, one of my sons was um, really starting to take to the classic rock too. Um, we started then going to record theater, right? In all these places, we wanted to build up that collection. I just got that, you know, that nostalgia feeling. So fast forward to now, we have over 700 vinyl records, but wow. I tell you, we love them. And yes, we just about all of them. But I love, I love it because it's nostalgic. It's a whole feeling, you know, mm. touching the albums and listening to the imperfections. I love it. I love it. We love it. And um, it's, it's, it's a hobby, but it's a passion. 
Well, it's something that's definitely close to my heart for sure. And um, our research team did a little bit of poking around and we got a couple of questions for you. A um, little multiple choice, make it as easy as possible. Hopefully uh, you have some of these in your collection, right? I'll tell you why in a second, right? Let's do it. All right, so, all right. What is considered the most valuable vinyl record on earth? Is it A, T for the Tillerman by Cat Stevens, B, The Quarrymen, That'll Be the Day, In Spite of All the Danger, or C, the soundtrack to the movie Wedding Crashers? E. Yes, you are right. Do you have any idea how much oh, this is I worth? I can't even imagine. Millions? It's 354000 as of 2019. 350,000. So you better go check to see if you got that in the box. I don't have it. I can tell you I don't have it. I've got a good memory and I can tell you a lot of stuff I have, but I do not have that. But you're right. Everybody, if you go home and check it out or if you're out garage sailing this year, go look for it. Jeez. <laughs> do people know why it's so valuable? I mean, do they know who the Quarrymen were? No, I don't. I know. I was just about to get to that. Right. So Paul McCartney wrote the song and it was in 1958. And he did it possibly at George Harrison's house. And he did it based on a song that he was inspired by Elvis. Well, you know, when you listen to and you hear information about the Beatles, they were influenced by a lot of great people. Yeah. And uh, that's why their music is so rich. All right. Ready for another one? Oh, bring it on. Let's go. Bring it okay. on. What is considered the rarest rock album? Is it A, Pink Floyd, The Wall? Two, The Beatles, The White Album. C, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Christmas, Don't Be Late. I'm going to go with The White Album, The First Pressing. Yes. Yeah. That is worth any ballpark. It's not a million. It's under a million. 500? 700? $790,000. Go look for that in your box. <laughs> I don't have that in my box either. I have the white album, but I doubt that I have the first pressing. And I don't think if I went to my my bookshelf that I'd have a first edition of anything either. You know, always kind of on the back end of that. But wow, that's crazy. So I wonder, like, who's got those? I have no idea. And, and I wonder what it sounds like, right? These people have these in, like, if they like the bags, like comic books, or they just sort of, you know, just hanging around and oh, look at this, and found this in my basement yesterday. Oh, I think people got tons of great stuff in their basement. They don't even know what they're holding on to. Well, I you know? don't doubt that. All right. So as you know, we're here to help people grow their businesses gracefully. What's a piece of advice that you wish that you would have received over the course of growing your business that would have helped you avoid a misstep or an unintended detour? Um, I think I wish I had known about setting the foundation first. Mm. So when I started career coaching and resume writing, I started my own business. I just jumped into it. I didn't understand everything that went into it. Oh. So I started immediately doing it, you know, got certifications, got all the credentials, did all of that. But in terms of the business, right, I'd never owned a business before. I had only worked for others. And so I wasn't really sure about all of those things. So I kind of pulled them in piece mm. by piece. Um, and then actually, I didn't start Inspire Careers. I bought it from someone else. I had subcontracted. So that's my piece of, of something I'd like to share. You know, subcontract with others, try to do the work that you want, learn from others. And that was a huge learning curve for me, which really accelerated my business. And then when the, um, the owner of Inspire Careers passed away, I bought the business. 
And that just exploded everything for me. I had my own clients and I had the, the legacy clients from there. Mm -hmm. um, but prior to that, putting it all together myself, I didn't know what I didn't know. Maybe it's a good thing. I don't think I would have done it if had I known. You know, I hear that a lot, right? If people knew like the whole, the whole steps of what was really going to go into like the e-myth, right? Um, the people would not start businesses, right? But um, you, you actually, you, you brought up something. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, you, you, you had started a business once also, and you've also bought a business. Can you, I know we didn't really talk about this on the spot, but what sort of the differences between what's good and the bad about a starting a business or two buying a business that sort of like a turnkey process that's um, that you can compare and contrast for people yeah. who might be on the fence about either. Yeah. Um, starting a business is great because you can be your own boss, right? You can do what you want. The big joke at my house, Sean, is about, yeah, start your own business. You can be your own boss. You can make your own hours. And I'm like, I'm working 20 hours a day. So yeah, I make my own hours. Yeah. Right? That's kind of the joke. But Back the challenge I thought with buying a business was when I had the legacy clients to come back to me, um, mm. my reputation wasn't an issue because they always felt that if I was good enough for the owner, mm. that you know I would be good enough for them. So that, that wasn't a, a hurdle, although I think people could have that. I think the biggest challenge though was creating my own style. Mm. And so having people appreciate me for who I was and not necessarily expecting things to unfold the way they had before. And so I really had to, you know, to go along with that. And that includes everything from process to pricing, yeah. right? And getting people to, to move along with me. And so that's been a process. And, you know, I've been very fortunate that the people that I work with are phenomenal people. Mm. And it's, it's just been an incredible experience. I'm so grateful for the clients that I work with. And, you know, as I'm, I'm always trying to increase my value to them, but I think about those early days and I think about, well, I wish I had known then what I know now, yeah. um, but you know, it's met meeting the expectations of people and understanding that you can't necessarily always meet them, right? You can't always do what they want you to do, but how can you explain it? How can you make sure that you're bridging that gap so yeah. that people understand your new value offering? Yeah, oh, that's great. On the flip side, what's a, a great piece of advice that um, you learned uh, that you'd like to pass along that you've gained from your journey? Don't compare yourself with others. That mm. is my daily struggle. I continue to do it. And I know that that is the secret to success is when I think about just myself and what I'm capable of, then I, I feel very powerful and I'm empowering and I just, I feel like I can do anything. And then when I sit back and I say, hmm, you know, I see somebody online doing this other thing and how come I didn't make that revenue last year? And then I start getting yeah. mad in my head. Um, you know, I think, I think it's Barbara Corcoran, who's my favorite uh, shark on Shark Tank, says the issue about, I won't quote her properly, but it's something about the issue of owning your business isn't the business. It's about what happens in your head. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. So not comparing yourself with others and realizing that you're capable of doing it or else you wouldn't be doing it at that minute. All right. So to close this out, um, what is something that you would recommend to business owners to start refining their people strategy in this new world of work? I think taking the temperature outside the analytics that you're paying for. So what I mean by that is assuming that these companies are paying consultants or, you know, or, or monitoring their own metrics about what their, uh, what their candidate, you know, the input rate is, what their cycle time is for filling positions, kind of get away from that and really talk to people. You know, they, they do the exit interviews when people leave organizations. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe if, if there was an ability to talk to the people that either you didn't hire 
or the people that you've recently hired to ask how that process went, you know, from start to finish, from the minute that they were associated with your brand and not as customers, although they are customers in that regard, but I don't mean the customers that are buying your product, but customers that are essentially buying into your brand. How was that experience for you? You know, how, how did we meet your expectations? What would you wish we had done differently? Yeah. I think maybe it's more of a grassroots effort. Oh, I like that a lot. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for being a good sport. And uh, it's wonderful to have you. Um, if you want to learn more about Kathy and how she can help you attract and retain great talent for your company, you can find her at? My website is inspirecareers.com. And I can be reached by my email, Kathy at inspirecareers.com. And that's Kathy with a C. So make sure you get that part of it right. But um, please feel free to reach out to me even to have the conversation. Um, As Sean said before, uh, that I have worked 18 years in human resources and I led a large HR team and and was very entrenched in that. So, you know, when I talk to people, I really give them a perspective from the other side of the desk. I really am an advocate for the employers as much as the employees. That's great. And if you want to learn more about what we do at SLC Advisory Group, come visit us at slcadvisorygroup.com. And of course, if you want to make sure that you don't miss any of our content, hit subscribe button. And when you do, we'll let you know when our next episode comes out. And we'll see you again next month. Thank you again, Kathy, very, very much. Thanks for having me, Sean. It was fun.